Chapter 13 Daniel Rowland's The Ministry In taking a general survey of the ministry of Daniel Rowland's of Thlangetho, the main thing that is noticed is the extraordinary power of his preaching. There was evidently something very uncommon about his sermons. On this point we have the clear and distinct testimony of a great cloud of witnesses. In a day when God raised up several preachers of very great power, Rowlands was considered by competent judges to be equaled by only one man, and to be excelled by none. Whitefield was thought to equal him, but even Whitefield was not thought to surpass him. This is undoubtedly high praise. An account of the good man's sermons will probably prove interesting to most of my listeners. What were their special characteristics? What were they like? I must begin by honestly confessing that the subject is surrounded by difficulties. The materials out of which we have to form our judgment are exceedingly small. Eight sermons, translated out of Welsh into English in the year 1774, are the only literary record that exists of the great Welsh apostle's fifty years of ministry. Besides these sermons and a few fragments of occasional speeches, we have hardly any means of testing the remarkably high estimate that his contemporaries formed of his preaching powers. When I add to this that the eight sermons that we have appear to be poorly translated, the reader and listener will have some idea of the difficulties I have to contend with. Let me remark, however, once for all, that when the generation that hears a great preacher passes away, it is often hard to find out the secret of his popularity. No well-read person can be ignorant that Martin Luther and John Knox in the sixteenth century, Stephen Marshall in the Commonwealth Times in the seventeenth century, and George Whitefield in the eighteenth century were the most popular and famous preachers of their respective eras. Yet probably no one can read their sermons as we now possess them without a secret feeling that they do not answer to their reputation. Basically, it's useless to deny that there is some hidden secret about pulpit power that cannot be defined. The person who attempts to depreciate the preaching of Rowlands on the ground that the only sermons of his now existing seem poor will find that he occupies an untenable position. He might as well attempt to depreciate the great champions of the German and Scottish Reformations. After all, we must remember that no one has a right to pass unfavorable criticisms on the remains of great popular preachers unless he has first thoroughly considered what kind of thing a popular sermon must of necessity be. The vast majority of those who hear sermons do not want fine words, close reasoning, deep philosophy, metaphysical abstractions, intricate distinctions, elaborate composition, and profound learning. They delight in plain language, simple ideas, powerful illustrations, direct appeals to heart and conscience, short sentences, and fervent, loving earnestness of manner. He who possesses such qualifications will seldom preach to empty benches. He who possesses them in a high degree will always be a popular preacher. Tried by this standard, the popularity of Luther and Knox is easily explained. Rowlands appears to have been a man of this type. An intelligent judge of popular preaching can hardly fail to see in his remains, through all the many disadvantages under which we read them, some of the secrets of his marvelous success. Having cleared my way by these preliminary remarks, 
I will proceed at once to show my readers and listeners some of the leading characteristics of the great Welsh evangelist's preaching. I give them as the result of a close analysis of his literary remains. As weak and poor as they undoubtedly look in the form of a translation, I believe that the following points stand out clearly in Rowland's sermons and give us a decent idea of what his preaching generally was like. The first thing that I notice in the sermons of Rowland's is the constant presence of Christ. The Lord Jesus stands out prominently on almost every page. His doctrine was always eminently evangelical. The men about whom I am writing were all men of that type, but of all the spiritual champions of the eighteenth century, none appear to me to have brought Christ forward more prominently than Roland's. The blood, the sacrifice, the righteousness, the kindness, the patience, the saving grace, the example, and the greatness of the Lord Jesus are subjects that appear to run through every sermon and are revealed at every turn. It seems as if the preacher could never say enough about his master and he never grew weary of commending him to his hearers. The divinity and humanity of Jesus, his office and his character, his death and his life, are brought to our attention in every possible connection. Yet it all seems to come naturally and without effort, as if it were the regular outflowing of the preacher's mind and the language of a heart speaking from its abundance. This, I suspect, was precisely one of the great secrets of Roland's power. A ministry full of the Lord Jesus is exactly the kind of ministry that I would expect God to bless. Christ-honoring sermons are just the sermons that the Holy Spirit seals with success. The second thing that I notice in the sermons of Rollins is an exceptional richness of thought and matter. Tradition records that Daniel Rollins was a diligent student all his life and spent a great deal of time in the preparation of his sermons. I can certainly believe this. Even in the few examples that we possess, I detect strong internal evidence that he was deeply read in Puritan divinity. I suspect that he was very familiar with the writings of such men as William Gurnall, Thomas Watson, Thomas Brooks, David Clarkson, and their contemporaries, and was constantly storing his mind with fresh thoughts from their pages. Those who imagine that the great Welsh preacher was nothing but an empty orator of tired topics, sparse sayings, and stale phrases, with a lively manner and a loud voice, are utterly and entirely mistaken. They will find, even in the tattered rags of his translated sermons, abundant proof that Rollins was a man who read much and thought much, and gave his hearers plenty to carry away. Even in the thin little volume of eight sermons that I have, I find frequent quotations from Chrysostom, Augustine, Ambrose, Bernard, and Theophylact. I find frequent reference to things recorded by Greek and Latin classical writers. I notice such names as Homer, Socrates, Plato, Eschines, Aristotle, Pythagoras, Carniades, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Nero, the Augean stable, Thersites, and Xantippe making their appearance here and there. I do not doubt that Rollins was indebted to his friends the Puritans for most of this material, but wherever he may have got his learning, there is no doubt that he had it and knew how to make use of it in his sermons. In this respect, I think he excelled all his contemporaries. Not one of them shows as much reading in his sermons as the clergyman of Slangetho. 
Here again, I dare to suggest that this was one great secret of Roland's success. The man who takes much effort with his sermons and never brings out what has cost him nothing, 2 Samuel 24:24, is just the man I expect God to bless. We need well-beaten oil for the service of the sanctuary. The third thing that I notice in the sermons of Rollins is the skilled appropriateness of the language in which he expressed his ideas. Of course, this is a point on which I must speak timidly, knowing literally nothing of the Welsh tongue and entirely dependent on translation. However, it's impossible to mistake certain features in style that prominently stand forth in everything that comes from the great Welsh apostle's mind. He abounds in short, terse, succinct, concise, proverbial sentences of the kind that engages the attention and sticks in the memory of hearers. He has a remarkably happy manner of quoting scriptures in confirming and enforcing the statement he makes. Above all, he is rich in images and illustrations drawn from almost everything in the world, but always put in such a way that the simplest mind can understand them. Much of the specific appeal of his preaching, I suspect, can be traced to this talent of putting things in the most vivid and pictorial way. He made his hearers feel that they actually saw the things of which he was speaking. No intelligent reader of the Bible needs to be reminded that in all this Rollins walked in the footsteps of his divine master. The sermons of him who spoke as never man spoke, John 7:46, were not fancy eloquent arguments parables founded on subjects familiar to the humblest intellect, and concise, straightforward, penetrating statements were the substance of our Lord Jesus Christ's preaching. Much of the marvelous success of Roland's can be traced back to his wise imitation of the best of patterns, the great head of the church. The fourth thing that I notice in the sermons of Roland's is the large measure of practical teaching and experience that enters into all his sermons. Anxious as he undoubtedly was to convert sinners and awaken the careless, he never seems to forget the importance of guiding the church of God and building up believers. Warnings, counsels, encouragements, and consolations appropriate for professing Christians are continually appearing in all his sermons. The distinct character of his ministerial position might partly account for this. He was always preaching in the same place and to many of the same hearers on Sundays. He was not nearly as much an itinerant as many of his contemporaries. He could not, like Whitefield, Wesley, and Berridge, preach the same sermon over and over again, and yet feel that probably none of his hearers had heard it before. Set for the defense of the gospel at Thlangetho every Sunday, and seeing the same faces looking up to him every week, he probably found it absolutely necessary to bring forth new things as well as old. Matthew thirteen fifty-two and to be often exhorting many of his hearers not to stand still in first principles, but to go on unto perfection. Hebrews 6, 1. Whatever the reason, there is abundant evidence in the sermons of Rollins that he never forgot the believers among his people, and generally managed to say a good many things for their special benefit. One more clue to Rollins' extraordinary usefulness is that he rightly divided the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2, 15, and gave to every man his portion. Most preachers of the gospel fail greatly in this matter. They either neglect the unconverted, 
or they neglect the true Christians in their congregations. They either spend their strength in perpetually teaching elementary truths, or else they dwell exclusively on the privileges and duties of God's children. Rowlands seems to have been remarkably free from this one-sided style of preaching. Even in the midst of the plainest addresses to the ungodly, he never loses the opportunity of making a general appeal to the godly. In a word, his ministry of God's truth was thoroughly well-balanced and well-proportioned, and this is just the ministry that we can expect the Holy Spirit to bless. His Preaching The manner and delivery of this great man, when he was in the act of preaching, requires some special notice. Every sensible Christian knows well that tone and delivery have a great deal to say to the effectiveness of a speaker, and above all, of one who speaks in the pulpit. A sermon, faultless both in doctrine and composition, will often sound dull and boring when tamely read by a clergyman with a sluggish, monotonous manner. A sermon of little intrinsic value, that contains not even half a dozen ideas, will often be approved as brilliant and eloquent when delivered by a lively speaker with a good voice. For lack of good delivery, some men make gold look like copper while others, by the sheer force of a good delivery, make a few pennies pass for gold. Divine truths seem really mended by the tongue of some, while they are marred and damaged by others. There is deep wisdom and knowledge of human nature in the answer given by a wise man of old to one who asked what the first qualifications of an orator were. The first qualification, he said, is action, and the second is action, and the third is action. The meaning, of course, was that it was almost impossible to overrate the importance of manner and delivery. The voice of Rowlands, according to tradition, was remarkably powerful. We can easily believe this when we recall that he frequently used to preach to thousands in the open air, and he made himself heard by all without difficulty. However, we must not suppose that power was the only attribute of his voice, and that he was no better than one who screamed, shouted, and yelled louder than other ministers. There is universal testimony from all good judges who heard him that his voice was exceptionally moving, affecting, and tender, and possessed a strange power of drawing forth the sympathies of his hearers. In this respect, he seems to have resembled Baxter and Whitefield. Also, like Whitefield, his feelings never interfered with the exercise of his voice and even when his affections moved him to tears in preaching, he was able to continue speaking with uninterrupted clearness. It is a striking feature of the moving character of his voice that a remarkable revival of religion began at Thlangetho while Rowlands was reading the litany of the Church of England. The exceptionally touching and tender manner in which he repeated the words, By your agony and bloody sweat, good Lord, deliver us, so much affected the whole congregation that almost everyone began to weep loudly, and an awakening of spiritual life began that extended throughout the neighborhood. Mention is made by all who write of him of the manner, demeanor, and action of Rowlands in the delivery of his sermons. All describe them as being something so extraordinary and remarkable that no one could have an idea of them except an eyewitness. He seems to have combined seriousness and vitality, dignity and familiarity, depth and fervor, in a most extraordinary degree. His remarkable plainness and directness made even the poorest feel at home when he preached. 
yet he never degenerated into levity or joking around. His images and similes brought things home to his hearers with such graphic power that they couldn't help sometimes smiling. But he never made his master's business ridiculous by joking in the pulpit. If he did say things that made people smile occasionally, he far more often said things that made them weep. The following account by the famous Welsh preacher Christmas Evans will probably give as good an idea as we can now obtain of Rollins in the pulpit. It deserves our attention because it is the sketch of a Welshman, an eyewitness, a keen observer, a genuine admirer of his hero, and one who was himself in later days a very extraordinary man. Rowland's mode of preaching was peculiar to himself, incomparable. I think I see him now entering in his black gown through a little door from the outside to the pulpit, making his appearance suddenly before the immense congregation. His countenance was in every sense adorned with majesty, and it testified to the man of strong sense, eloquence, and authority. His forehead was high and prominent. His eye was quick, sharp, and penetrating. He had an aquiline or Roman nose, proportional splendid lips, projecting chin, and a sonorous, commanding, and well-toned voice. When he made his appearance in the pulpit, he frequently called out, with a clear and audible voice, for Psalm 27.4 to be sung. Only one verse was sung before the sermon, in those days notable for divine influences, but the whole congregation joined in singing it with great fervor. Then Rollins would stand up and read his text distinctly, in the hearing of all. The whole congregation was all ears and most attentive, as if on the verge of hearing some divine and heavenly oracle, and the eyes of all the people were at the same time most intensely fixed upon him. At the beginning of his discourse he had some stirring, compelling idea, like a small box of ointment that he opened before his sermon. It filled all the house with his heavenly perfume, as the odor of Mary's alabaster box of ointment at Bethany, and the congregation, being delightfully refreshed with a sweet odor, was prepared to look for more of it from one box after the other throughout the sermon. Thus Rollins, having glanced at his notes as a matter of form, would go on with his discourse in a calm and deliberate manner, speaking with a free and audible voice. He would gradually become warmed with his subject, and at length his voice became so elevated and authoritative that it resounded throughout the whole chapel. The effect on the people was wonderful. You could see nothing but smiles and tears running down the faces of all. Once the first flame of heavenly devotion under the first division had died down, he would again look at his scrap of notes and begin the second time to melt and shape the minds of the people until he formed them again into the same heavenly spirit. Thus he would do six or seven times in the same sermon. Roland's voice demeanor and appearance used to change exceedingly in the pulpit, and he seemed to be greatly excited, but there was nothing ignoble or disagreeable in him. All was right, dignified, and excellent. There was an impassioned, invincible flame in his ministry that effectively drove away the careless, worldly, dead spirit. The people so awakened drew near, as it were, to the bright cloud, to Christ, to Moses, and Elijah with eternity and its amazing realities rushing into their minds. There was very little, if any, inference or application at the end of Roland's sermon, for he had been applying and enforcing the glorious truths of the gospel throughout his entire discourse. 
he would conclude with a very few powerful and forceful remarks that were most overwhelming and invincible. Then he would make a very sweet, short prayer and utter the blessing, after which he would hurry out of the pulpit and through the little door. His exit was as sudden as his entrance. Rowlands was a star of the greatest magnitude that appeared in the last century in the land, and there has likely not been any like him in Wales since the days of the Apostles. It seems almost needless to add other testimony to this expressive sketch, although it might easily be added. The late Mr. Jones of Creton, who was no insignificant judge, and who heard the greatest preachers in England and Wales, used to declare that he never heard but one Rowlands. The very first time he heard him, he was so struck with his manner of delivery, as well as his sermon, that it led him to a serious train of thought that ultimately resulted in his conversion. Charles of Bala, himself a very eminent minister, said that there was a special dignity and grandeur in Roland's ministry, as well as profound thoughts, strength, and melodiousness of voice, and clearness and animation in exhibiting the deep things of God. A Birmingham minister, who came accidentally to a place in Wales where Rowlands was preaching to an immense congregation in the open air, said, I never witnessed such a scene before. The striking appearance of the preacher and his zeal, animation, and fervor were beyond description. Rowlands' countenance was most expressive. It glowed almost like an angel's. His Sermons After saying so much about the gifts and power of this great preacher, it might not be entirely fair to offer any examples of his sermons. To say nothing of the fact that we only possess them in the form of translations, it must never be forgotten that true pulpit eloquence can rarely be expressed on paper. Wise men know well that sermons that are excellent to listen to are precisely the sermons that do not read well. However, as I have previously generally given my readers and listeners some illustrations of the style of my eighteenth-century heroes, they might be disappointed if I don't give them a few passages from Rowland's. My first example will be taken from his sermon on the words, Scripture, All things work together for good to those who love God. Romans 8, 28. Observe what he says. Don't make an exception when he makes none. All. He has no exceptions. Be assured in your faith, give glory to God, and resolve with Job. Scripture, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Job 13:15. The Almighty might seem to be your enemy for a season in order that he can become your eternal friend. O believers, after all your tribulation and anguish, you must conclude with David. Scripture, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Psalm 119.71. Under all your unrest you must exclaim, O the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and His ways past finding out! Romans 11.33. His glory is seen when He works by means. It is seen even more when He works without means. It is seen above all when He works contrary to means. It was a great work to open the eyes of the blind. It was greater still to do it by applying clay and saliva, things more likely, some think, to take away sight than to restore. He sent a horror of great darkness on Abraham when he was preparing to give him the best light. Genesis 15:12. He touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh and lamed him when he was going to bless him. Genesis 32:25. 25. 
He smote Paul with blindness when he was intending to open the eyes of his mind. Acts 9, 8-9. He refused the request of the woman of Canaan for a while, but afterward she obtained her desire. Matthew 15, 21-28. See, therefore, that all the paths of the Lord are mercy, and that all things work together for good to those who love Him. Even affliction is very useful and profitable to the godly. The prodigal son had no thought of returning to his father's house until he had been humbled by adversity. Luke 15, 17-18. Hagar was conceited under Abraham's roof and despised her mistress, but in the wilderness she was meek and lowly. Genesis 21, 9, 16. Jonah slept on board ship. Jonah 1, 5. But in the whale's belly he watched and prayed. Jonah 2, 1. Manasseh lived wickedly at Jerusalem and committed the most enormous crimes. Second Chronicles 33, 1-9. But when he was bound in chains in the prison of Babylon, his heart was turned to seek the Lord, his God. Second Chronicles 33, 12. Bodily pain and disease have been instrumental in stirring up many to seek Christ, when those who are in good health have given themselves no concern about Him. The ground that is not rent and torn with the plough bears nothing but thistles and thorns. The vines will run wild in time if they are not pruned and trimmed. So would our wild hearts be overrun with filthy, poisonous weeds if the true vine-dresser did not often hinder their growth by crosses and sanctified troubles. Our Saviour says that He prunes every branch that bears fruit so that it will be even more fruitful. John 15, 2. There can be no gold or silver finely fashioned without first being purified with fire. There can be no elegant houses built with stones until the hammers have squared and smoothed them. In the same way, we cannot become vessels of honor in the house of our Father until we are melted in the furnace of affliction. We cannot become living stones in the walls of New Jerusalem until the hand of the Lord has beaten off our proud lumps and tumors with His own hammers. He doesn't say that all things might but do work together for good. The work is on the wheel, and every movement of the wheel is for your benefit. Even your enemies, the old dragon and his angels, are engaged in this matter. It's true that this is not their design. No, they think they are carrying on their own work of destroying you, as it was said of the Assyrian whom the Lord sent to punish a hypocritical nation, how be it he means not so, Isaiah 7.10, yet it was God's work that he was carrying on, although he didn't intend to do so. All events that take place in the world carry on the same work, the glory of the Father and the salvation of His children. Every illness and infirmity that may afflict you, every loss you may meet with, every reproach you may endure, every shame that may humble you, every sorrow in your hearts, every agony and pain in your flesh, and every ache in your bones are for your good. Every change in your condition, your fine weather and your rough weather, your sunny weather and your cloudy weather, your ebbing and your flowing, your liberty and your imprisonment, all turn out for good. O Christians, see what a harvest of blessings ripens from this text. The Lord is at work, all creation is at work. Men and angels, friends and foes, are all busy working together for God's glory and your good. O oh, dear Lord Jesus, what have you seen in us that you should order things so wondrously for us, and make all things, all things, to work together for our good? My second example will be taken from Daniel Rowland's sermon on Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, 
I will come in to him, and will sup with him, and he with me. Oh, how barren and unfruitful the soul of man is, until the word descends like rain upon it, and it's watered with the dew of heaven! But when a few drops have entered, and made it pliable, what a rich harvest of graces they produce! Is there a heart so full of malice, that the most prayerful knee can expect no pardon? Is it as hard to be pacified and calmed as the roaring sea when agitated by a furious storm? Is it a covetous heart, so covetous that no scene of distress can soften it into sympathy, and no object of misery can extort a penny from its grip? Is it a wandering and adulterous heart, that may as soon be satisfied as the sea can be filled with gold? Be it so. But when the word will drop on it, as the rain, and distill as the dew, Deuteronomy 32, 2, Behold, in an instant the flint is turned into flesh, the tumultuous sea is hushed into a calm, and the mountains of Gilboa are clothed with herbs and flowers, where before not a green blade was to be seen. See the mighty change! It converts Zacchaeus, the hard-hearted publican and plundering tax-collector, into a restorer of what he had unjustly gotten, and a merciful reliever of the needy. It tames the furious persecuting Saul, and makes him as gentle as a lamb. It clothes Ahab with sackcloth and ashes. It reduces Felix to such anguish of mind that he trembles like an aspen leaf. It causes Peter to leave his nets, and makes him catch thousands of souls at one time in the net of the gospel. Behold, the world is converted to the faith, not by the magicians of Egypt, but by the outcasts of Judea. The last example that I will give is from Roland's sermon on Hebrews 1, 9. Thou hast loved righteousness, and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Christ took our nature upon him, so that he might sympathize with us. Almost every creature is tender toward its own kind, no matter how ferocious it is to others. The bear will not be deprived of her whelps without resistance. She will tear the spoiler to pieces if she can. But how great must be the jealousy of the Lord Jesus for his redeemed people! He will not lose any of them. He has taken them as members of himself, and as such watches over them with tenderest care. How much will a man do for one of his limbs before he allows it to be cut off? Think not, O man, that you would do more for the members of your body than the Son of God. To think so would be blasphemy, for the preeminence in all things belongs to him. Yes, he is acquainted with all your temptations, because he was in all things tempted as you are. Hebrews 4.15. Are you tempted to deny God? So was he. Are you tempted to kill yourself? So was he. Are you tempted by the vanities of the world? So was he. Are you tempted to idolatry? So was he. Yes, even to worship the devil. He was tempted from the manger to the cross. He was a man of sorrows unacquainted with grief. Isaiah 53.3. The head in heaven is sympathizing with the feet that are pinched and pressed on earth, and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Acts 9.4. I would find no difficulty in adding to these examples, if space allowed me to do so. As weak and unsatisfactory as they undoubtedly are, in the form of a translation, they might give you some idea of what Rollins was in the pulpit, as far as concerns the working of his mind. Of his manner and delivery, of course, they cannot give the least idea. It would be easy to fill pages with short, concise, proverbial sayings selected from his sermons, of which there is a rich abundance in many passages, 
but enough has probably been presented to give a general impression of the preaching that did such wonders at Thangetho. Those who want to know more of it should try to get hold of the little volume of translated sermons from which my extracts have been made. Faintly and inadequately as it represents the great Welsh preacher, it's still a volume worth having, and one that should be better known than it is. Dozens of books are reprinted in the present day that are not half as valuable as Roland's eight sermons. His character. The inner life and private character of the great Welsh preacher would form a deeply interesting subject, no doubt, if we knew more about them. But the complete absence of all materials except a few scattered anecdotes leaves us very much in the dark. Unless the memoirs of great men are written by relatives, neighbors, or contemporaries, it stands to reason that we will know little of anything except their public conduct and actions. This applies eminently to Daniel Rowlands. He had no one near him to chronicle the details of his long and laborious life and to present him to us as he appeared at home. The consequence is that a vast quantity of interesting matter that the Church of Christ would like to know lies buried with him in his grave. One thing, though, is very certain. His private life was as holy, blameless, and consistent as the life of a Christian can be. Some fifteen years ago, the Quarterly Review contained an article insinuating that he was addicted to drunkenness, which called forth an indignant and complete refutation from many competent witnesses in South Wales, and especially from the neighborhood of Thangetho. It should never surprise us that such charges are made against good men. Slander and lying are the devil's favorite weapons when he wants to injure the mightiest assailants of his kingdom. Satan is preeminently a liar, John 8.44. John Bunyan, George Whitefield, and John Wesley had to drink of the same bitter cup as Daniel Rowlands. Mr. Griffith, the vicar of Aberdare, in a reply to the article of the Quarterly Review, printed at Cardiff, abundantly proved that the accusation against Rowlands was a mere groundless, malicious falsehood. If we read our Bibles, we don't need to be reminded who it was of whom the wicked Jews said, Behold a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Matthew 11:19. If the children of this world cannot prevent the gospel being preached, they try to attack the character of the preacher. What does the Scripture say? Scripture? The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Matthew 10.24-25 The only light that we can throw on the character and private habits of Roland's is derived from the few anecdotes that still survive about him. I will therefore conclude my account of him by presenting them to you without note or comment. One leading feature in Roland's character was his humility. Like every eminent servant of God of whom much is known, he had a deep and abiding sense of his own sinfulness, weakness, and corruption, and of his constant need of God's grace. On seeing a large crowd of people coming to hear him, he would frequently exclaim, Oh, may the Lord have mercy on me, and help me, a poor worm, sinful dust and ashes. When a backslider was pointed out to him, who had once been one of his followers, he said, 
is to be feared indeed that he's one of my disciples. For if he had been one of my Lord's disciples, he would not have been in such a state of sin and rebellion. During his latter days, he often used to say that there were four lessons that he had labored to learn throughout the whole course of his Christian life. Yet he was still a poor scholar even in his old age. These lessons were the following 1. To repent without despairing. 2. To believe without being presumptuous. 3. To rejoice without falling into levity. And 4. To be angry without sinning. He also used to often say that a self righteous legal spirit in man was like his shirt, a garment that he puts on first and takes off last. A habit of praying much was another leading characteristic of Roland's. It is said that he often used to go to the top of Aaron Hills and there pour out his heart before God in the most tender and earnest manner for the salvation of the numerous inhabitants of the country that lay around him. Edward Morgan wrote of him, He lived in the spirit of prayer, and hence his extraordinary success. On one occasion, having agreed to preach at a certain church that stood on a hill, he had to cross a valley in sight of the people who were waiting for him in the churchyard. They saw him descend into the bottom of the valley, but then lost sight of him for some time. At last, as he did not come up by the time they expected, and the time for the service had arrived, some of them went down the hill in search of him. They discovered him on his knees in a secluded spot a little out of the road. He got up when he saw them, and went with them, expressing sorrow for the delay, but he added, I had a delightful opportunity below. The sermon that followed was most extraordinary in power and effect. Diligence was another distinguishing feature in the character of Rowlands. He was continually improving his mind by reading, meditation, and study. He used to be awake and reading as early as four o'clock in the morning. He took immense pains in the preparation of his sermons. Morgan says, Every part of God's Word, in time, became quite familiar to him. He could tell chapter and verse of any text or passage of Scripture that was mentioned to him. Indeed, the Word of God dwelt richly in him. He had, moreover, a most retentive memory and when preaching could repeat the text referred to extemporaneously, most easily and appropriately. Self-denial was another leading feature of Roland's character. All his life he was a very poor man, but he was always content, and he lived in the simplest way. Twice he refused the offer of good livings, one in North Wales and the other in South Wales, and preferred to remain a dependent assistant with his flock at Thlangetho. The offer in one case came from the excellent John Thornton. When he heard that Rowlands had refused it, and learned his reasons, he wrote to Daniel Rowlands's son, saying, I had a high opinion of your father before, but now I have a still higher opinion of him, even though he declined my offer. The reasons he gave are highly admirable. It's not a usual thing with me to allow other people to go to my pocket, but tell your father that he's fully welcome to do so whenever he pleases. The great Welsh evangelist resided in nothing but a small cottage throughout his entire life, possessing no great accommodation. His journeys, when he went about preaching, were made on horseback, until at last a small carriage was left to him as a legacy in his old age. When journeying in his master's service, he was content with very simple food and very poor lodgings. He himself says, 
We used to travel over hills and mountains on our little nags, without anything to eat but the bread and cheese we carried in our pockets, and without anything to drink but water from the springs. If we had a little buttermilk in some cottages, we thought it a great thing. But now men must have tea, and some, too, must have brandy. Never did man seem so thoroughly to realize the ancient and apostolic rule of life, Scripture, having food and clothing, let us be therewith content. 1 Timothy 6, 8. Courage was another prominent feature in Roland's character. He was often fiercely persecuted when he went about preaching, and even his life was sometimes in danger. Once, when he was preaching at Aberystwyth, a man swore in a dreadful manner that he would shoot Roland's immediately. He aimed his gun and pulled the trigger, but it would not go off. Another time, his enemies actually placed gunpowder under the place where he was about to stand when preaching. They laid a trail of gunpowder to a distant point, so that at a given time they could apply a match and blow up the preacher and congregation. However, before the time arrived, a good man providentially discovered the whole plot and brought it to nothing. On other occasions, riotous mobs were assembled, stones were thrown, drums were beaten, and every effort was made to prevent the people from hearing the sermon. None of these things ever seems to have deterred Rollins for a moment. As long as he had strength to work, he went on with his master's business, unmoved by opposition and persecution. Like Colonel Gardner, he feared God, and beside him he feared nothing. He had given himself to the work of preaching the gospel, and from this work he allowed neither clergy nor laity, bishops nor nobility, rich nor poor, to keep him back. Fervency and wholeheartedness are the last characteristics that I want to point out in Rollins. He never did anything by halves, whether preaching or praying, whether in church or in the open air. He seems to have done all he did with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He possessed as much energy, says one witness, as were sufficient for six men. This energy seems to have had an inspiring effect about it, sweeping everything before it like a fire. One person who went to hear him every month from Carnarvonshire gives a fascinating account of his remarkable fervor when Rollins was preaching on John 3:16. He said, He dwelt with such overwhelming, extraordinary thoughts on the love of God and the vastness of His gift to man that I was swallowed up in amazement. I didn't know that my feet were on the ground. Yes, I had no idea where I was, whether on earth or in heaven. Then he cried out with a most powerful voice, Praised be God for keeping the Jews in ignorance, respecting the greatness of the person in their hands. Had they known who he was, they would never have presumed to touch him much less to drive nails through his blessed hands and feet, and to put a crown of thorns on his holy head. For, as 1 Corinthians 2, 8 says, had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I will wind up this account of Roland's by mentioning a little incident that the famous Roland Hill often spoke of in his latter days. He was attending a meeting of Methodist ministers in Wales during one of his visits, when a man nearly a hundred years old got up from a corner of the room and addressed the meeting in the following words, Brethren, let me tell you this. I have heard Daniel Rowlands preach, and I heard him once say, Except your consciences be cleansed by the blood of Christ, you must all perish in the eternal fires. 
Rowlands at that time had been dead more than a quarter of a century. Yet even at that interval, though dead, he spoke. Hebrews 11.4. It is a faithful saying and worthy of all remembrance that the ministry that exalts Christ crucified the most is the ministry that produces the most lasting effects. Never, perhaps, did any preacher exalt Christ more than Rowlands did, and never did any preacher leave behind him such deep and abiding marks in the isolated corner of the world where he labored a hundred years ago. Okay, I'll stop that now.